USDA offers the option to put more than 2 million acres into the Conservation Reserve Program. Good news for those producers. Meanwhile, there's more bad news on the resistant weed front. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. USDA Farm Service Administration is accepting more than 2 million acres in offers from producers and landowners to place land into the Conservation Reserve Program. Farm Progress Policy Editor Jackie Fatka talked about this news and several other FSA issues with Zach Ducheneau, FSA Administrator. He offers an interesting perspective on CRP along with several other issues the agency is dealing with. Then we turn our attention to the word farmers may be tired of, resistance. Yet it's an issue that refuses to go away. And now there's news of a new kind of resistance hitting farmers in the South. Brad Hare, Southeast Farm Press, shares some insight on the issue of resistance and digs into the latest news about PPO herbicides and Palmer amaranth, which is worth a listen. First up, let's get an FSA update on CRP and other issues with Jackie Fatka and Zach Ducheneau. We are here with uh, FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau, and uh, we have some updates on the CRP signup that we had Uh, just recently announced. And so I guess first off, uh, Administrator, if you want to just highlight, we have a lot of acres that are coming out of CRP this year. And, uh, you know, what did we see in this year's re-enrollment? Well, in re-enrollment, we saw numbers up a little bit compared to last year based on a percentage of acres offered for re-enrollment. And we accepted just over 2 million acres and so, you know, of those 2 million acres, um, were there some that were not accepted? I know that you guys do have some stipulations on how many acres within a county could be accepted, or was there not any issues with that? Were there actually more acres than could have been accepted that were uh, put into the into the pool, I guess you could say? Well, I, th- I think the, the balance that we try to strike, Jackie, is to make sure that we're enrolling the most suitable acres in the CRP program, and we use an environmental benefits index to do that. We stayed pretty closely aligned with the EBI that we used last year, and that landed us at about 90% enrollment of accepted offers, or 90% acceptance of the offered enrollment. Now, producers will have through the fall to make a final determination on whether or not to go forward with that commitment. So we could actually see some of these acres that that may still look at the market and look at their land and say, well, maybe we'll we'll keep this in production. So this isn't necessarily a, a set in stone on those 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 lands that may have been accepted, correct? Yes, that is that's the benefits of a voluntary and incentive-based program is it gives the producers another economic option from which to plan for their future. So this is just the continuous sign-up, or was this the general sign-up? I know that you have a couple different CRP sign-ups, and so I just want to yeah. clarify which this is uh, includes. So this is general sign-up, also known as sign-up number 58. And the continuous sign-up, which enrolls more vulnerable acres on an ongoing basis, is, like it says, continuous. It goes on throughout the year. And so far, we've got just over a quarter million acres enrolled through continuous sign-up. Let's kind of take a bigger 
look at all of the CRP acres. How many total CRP acres do you have right now? Um, and how does that match up with the overall cap that Congress has for the CRP program? I'd have to double check the numbers, but it seems like from memory, we were at about 22.4 million acres coming into this year with around 3.4 million coming out. So with the 2 million acres that we accepted, we've got another 260,000 acres in continuous so far, and we've got the grassland sign up open right now. I think our available cap for this year is maybe 23 and a half million. Let me pull that up real quick and get you a number. Well, actually we're, we can go to 25.5 million acres in fiscal year 2022. So we've got we've got room to continue the momentum of the grassland CRP sign up. You know, the grasslands is is more of a working program in some ways because you can graze on that and you don't necessarily have to take that out of production. Is that right? That that's exactly right and I would offer that we're not taking CRP land out of production. We're changing the nature of production on it. And as an example, last year, all across the, the northwestern part of the United States, down into the midsection and west, producers were able to use the reserve aspect of the Conservation Reserve Program to help keep their cattle herds together through emergency haying and grazing. You know, kind of building on that, being able to use the, the reserve part of the title, um, obviously a lot of areas, especially in the West, are dealing with drought. And you guys have made some changes so that if it is a drought area and it's been designated as a drought area, they can know without waiting for Congress or waiting for the administration to act on being able to graze on that. Um, any update you can provide? Is there a lot of those areas right now that, that are able to use CRP? And does that also help those producers in those drought-stricken areas find more, more forage? I, I think it really does. And it's not just in the, in the times of need. There have been changes made to CRP that will allow the harvesting of forage either through mechanical or animal means in normal years at approved rates under approved plans. So that'll allow producers to stockpile forage for when that disaster does hit. But you know, to that to that end, last year as the drought became more pervasive, more questions arose about emergency haying and grazing and how that overlaid with more severe drought and the practices on which it was available. So we put together a really clear two-page explanation of when emergency haying and grazing was authorized, when normal permissive uses were authorized, uh, non-emergency, and what the difference was. And that we put that up on our website on the CRP page for producers to, to take a look at. I think it's always good for producers to know exactly what what is available and, and some of those changes on the CRP emergency grazing side of, of this this topic. You know, a lot of people have been asking for changes to CRP because of what we're seeing in Ukraine and just in overall world uh, concerns on, you know, crop production and shortages. Um, maybe provide folks on an update on that. I know you've been involved in a lot of those conversations, but is there any chance we could see uh, early opt-out options for those acres that are retiring or coming out possibly later this fall or anything to help them even maybe start doing some groundwork on those acres that are coming out of CRP yet this summer? 
That's a really good point, and thanks for bringing that up because that's one of the communications that we're trying to get out to our producers that have decided not to re-enroll. They have the option to to start doing some field prep for the fall when that land does come out of out from under the contract. And we're going to be reaching out and communicating with each and every one of those producers through some written communication so that they're fully read in on what their options are. Good. And so those contracts are good good until the end of September, right? So not likely that they could get into those fields any before that, or is that part of the discussion? Well, there there are processes that they can do to prepare that field for fall work. Well, I'm sure there's um, you know, a lot of folks who are are interested in how that that might be able to to see some of that land change. I shouldn't say come back into production, but change production type uh, as we look forward. Um, you know, what else is going on at the farm uh, FSA offices? Uh, I, I understand offices are all back open now. Is that correct? Offices are for the overwhelming majority, 100% staffed at this point in time in person. They've been open and doing business all along through the pandemic and God bless our staff for being able to do that in the reality of navigating a pandemic when there's a lot of other uncertainties. I think everybody's really glad to be able to back to get back to some face-to-face communication, getting together over that table and re-engaging with our producers more regularly and, and more personally. Good. Um, any updates uh, beyond this that you want to offer to those producers who, um, you know, what other things are folks coming into the offices for now and what other things should be on their radar? I'm sure you all did some stories on the changes we made to ELAP, so I would go back and reread some of that stuff. Uh, we've improved some of the assistance tools for livestock producers in our standing program, the emergency assistance for farm-raised fish livestock and honeybees program which we call elap for some unknown reason (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but we added forage hauling as a practice under elap that we would help cost share for producers and based on feedback from from a drought tour we did in north dakota in june producers said we need we need some help with this and we were able to find a way within existing authority to do it we rolled the program out and producers said, hey, that's really good. We'd like to be able to take the livestock to where the feed are because that's more economical for some of us. So we were able to make a change to that program on the fly and, and help get more producers enrolled. Those programs are still open now if you're in a drought and they're getting ready to trigger for this program year as well. Uh, ELAP, Emergency Conservation Program, Keep an eye on the drought monitor for livestock forage disaster program and stay in touch with your local county office so that you're they've got they're gonna have the most timely and relevant information for your locality. But check in on the website and and read those archived news releases for the changes that we've made. And if you have any good ideas, share them with us. Because while we're happy with this progress we've made, we know there might be some things that we haven't considered and we're willing to give it a try and just see see just how much flexibility we can exercise to get producers in the door. Well, uh, Administrator Ducheneau, it's always great to hear uh, from you what's going on with the FSA offices and the work that you're doing to, to get some of those services and money out to rural America. So we appreciate your time today. 
It's my pleasure, Jackie. Thanks for all the work that you all do helping us spread the word. I appreciate it. Thanks to FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau for his insight on the CRP program, as well as other programs his agency administers. And we appreciate Jackie Fakas reporting on policy. Now we turn to resistant weeds and a new form of resistance that may be hitting farmers in the South. But as you know, what starts in the South doesn't always stay there. Brad Hare, Southeast Farm Press, talks resistance. He covers Georgia, which he says is a kind of petri dish for resistance development. Let's check in with Brad on the news he's got for us. Well, Brad, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Hey, Willis, good. I appreciate you letting me be on with you, man. Well, it's fun. Um, we, we're talking about a topic that maybe, maybe we all don't want to talk about, but I think we should start focusing on again, and that would be resistance. And I'm talking to you because, uh, for lack of a better term, you're in Georgia, which has sort of got its own um, reputation for weed resistance, I think, if you look at history, right? That's right. I, I agree with you. you know, we talk about resistance, but it's, you know, it's one of those things we have to keep talking about as well. And, and growers know it, but uh, it's, it's, it's not going away. Obviously, we got to keep our eye on it. But yeah, I guess you could say Georgia was kind of the, we got great growers, but you know, it's just the climate, how things go, which I guess you could call us the petri dish for some, uh, some, for some, for about any kind of resistance problem you might have. But yeah, the, the history's there. I mean, when you talk about resistance and, and and with our cotton in particular, there's a story there that goes back, you know, two decades to where, you know, the, the first, you know, pigweed, Palmer amaranth uh, resistant to glyphosate was documented in Georgia. And, you know, that was just the game changer. And um, and we've been talking about weed resistance. It's been on the front. And like you say, you're right, it's been on the uh, front burner, burner for so long, people may get tired of it. But, you know, we're having incidents where resistance keeps popping up, not just from glyphosate. Right. And the other challenge is while Palmer was a big deal in Georgia and there was news when it was found to be resistant there, it has spread far and wide. And now we're seeing Palmer farther north. And that Palmer that showed up in Iowa tends to be resistant to glyphosate. But it all it's an interesting change. But, you know, when you look at resistance in Georgia, I mean, really put some perspective on it. What does it really cost a grower to have a weed that's resistant like that? Well, it's good to have an indicate. It's good to put a, a hang of story or a hang of thought on a number, and, and there's one particular number that t- typically gets people's attention when they hear it, and it's two billion dollars, and that is what it's cost cotton growers just in Georgia alone, and you can see the trend in other parts of the cotton belt as well. But in Georgia alone, in the last 20 years since we've had the glyphosate resistant pigweed issued, two billion dollars, and that's just what it's costing them for per acre on herbicide applications, meaning this is surveys based off University of Georgia Extension talking to growers over the last this long to see what it's cost them. And, you know, as early you know, as low as 20 bucks, maybe an acre back when we had Roundup, you know, $100 per acre at the worst time, maybe we're down to 50 or 60 now. But overall, it's too big just to control Palmer Amaranth weed in cotton in Georgia. Good heavens. And that's and yet, what, and you're better at math than I am with it, but you know, <laughs> on the back of the envelope, that's about a hundred million a year <laughs> just to control that weed. Yeah. And it, and it's not getting any easier because the other side of this story is we're starting to hear resistance, Palmer resistance to other pro- practices that have been tried and true, right? That's right. And one of them, one of the most recent ones, and you know, this, this pulls in part of our friends in Tennessee as well, especially in, and in Georgia right now. Uh, we've known for a couple of years that we're, pigweed is not, we have a population of pigweed in Georgia that doesn't succumb to over-the-top 
applications of our PPO herbicides, right? And that's the red flag. But just recently, and I'm talking maybe in the last over the winter and greenhouse uh, studies with UG Extension, namely some of the, you know, Stanley Culpepper is one of the people may know as a, as a weed scientist here in Georgia. Um, he feels comfortable to say that we do now have that pigweed population is also resistance to the residual activity of our PPOs. And that's, that is really alarming because we use those residual PPOs. That's a reflex type thing like that, mm -hmm. when, uh, which is a great product when, when you don't have resistance. But that population is also uh, busting through the residual activity of the PPO. And that gets us off to a terrible start uh, at planting. You know, you want to start clean, but then if that residual and that piggery's pumping through, you may have, by the time you get back over the top with that application of uh, whatever the dicamma or the Liberty, whatever your system is, uh, that, that pigweed's too big, right? I mean, they say, what, two or three inches at the most? If it's bigger than that, you, you might be wasting your time. So, yeah, that's one of the issues that this most recent, I guess you could say, chapter in the resistance story of cotton in Georgia is right now that PPA. Of course, you know, as you said, what we said earlier, pigweed is just one of those, it's got five ways. You know, it's, I've heard it said, and I'll say it again, it's just a genetic stud. It's going to outflank you. It's going to do its best to outflank you. One, we were excited because with PPOs, because we'd lost the, res we had resistance of the over-the-top PPO, but it seemed that soil-applied PPOs just kept it down. That's right. And now you're now you're saying that's a, there's breakthroughs. Yeah, and that's confirmed too. And he's comfortable saying that that population in Georgia, and it's a 15 to 30 times resistance level. I mean, you know, you, you it's not just your average residual you put out there. It's it's busting through 15, 30 times what the label rate would be. So you know you have true resistance at that point. Yeah, and then of course the way Palmer breeds, being as heterozygous, it 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 passes genetic material very fast. That's right. So this is going to spread across cotton country, but I guess it's going to spread into soybean country where we're dealing with Palmer too, which is also not good. Um, so what is that? Where does that leave a guy? I mean, when you're looking at keep losing another practice, and to be honest, a lot of farmers are doing a great job on pre-emerges and changing up their, their modes of yeah. actions and their sites of actions. And they, you know, I, I assume some days when they hear us talk about resistance, it feels like head to desk repeat, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> a little bit. Exactly. But but what what what's Dr. Culpepper, for example, saying? What are the next tactics he's looking at as we start to see this kind of problem? Yeah, and, 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 and just on the side, too, with a season yeah. like this, you know, with inputs are so high, it's hard to make that that really, you know, best practice you can make and still make it sustainable but with the ppo it's like i said it's just another chapter in the resistance level but you know the and you try to go back to the sound program which you know and all these people just you know, putting their head back on the desk again we've heard it you know but you got to start claiming it's sound program with these residuals that's why it's so scared worrisome to have this residual because we went back we went 20 years from that just one stop kills all and now we know a systems approach how important that is and having availability of the tools to make those systems work and growers know that and they're doing their best and obviously the ones that are still in business are the ones that got it years ago obviously and but these new curveballs throw problems at it but they know the residual activity get those sequential posts that's in cotton you know you get that one post out the post emergence application now you got to come back again and make sure that other one uh one thing that's an old thing that's relatively new again hopefully and this is, goes back to what you said what dr culpepper saying in yeah. some extension other people is you know the old extinct lay-by application in cotton 
which was more common way back in the day. But that layby application right before canopy closed to help clean up something we might have missed. And that's an opportunity to get a different chemistry out there, which is a good thing. That mixes it up and that helps you with your resistance management. And that's like a diron or something like that we're able to use with a hood or give out under there. Uh, it, it's, is it cost effective to do it 100% of your acreage? Probably not. I mean, that's why a lot of people don't do it. But he's saying if you know you got a trouble, you know, 10 or 15% of that acreage in that cotton field, you know you got a problem. It's probably worth it getting that laid by out there as best you can and control that part of it because eventually, if we don't, I mean, you're going to, it, sustainability is not going to be there. It's going to eat your lunch. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, it, it's just, if you're saying lay by, there's a lot of people in cotton country listening to this, rolling their eyes. You know that because yeah. it is a time intensive practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the good news is we have better scouting tools now. So if I'm droning my field or if That's I'm right. running uh -huh. air, I can map those weeds and I could say, OK, I'm going to go a little outside where they are. So I get a little bigger buffer. Right. And then I can just lay by here and I only may be hitting 20 percent of my fields instead yeah. of 100 percent. So the nice thing is if I can bring these uh, scouting tools to, to bear, that could be valuable, too. Yeah. And of course, conservation tillage, you know, this and everybody knows this, you know, pigweed hates a conservation tillage system, but it that's not the end all. Sometimes. You may have to go out there if it's every three or four or five years and do that deep till. I mean, sometimes you you got to do it, and, and that's that's a good way to do to keep that uh, seed bank buried down and uh, keep that sustainability going with the system. You know what is it, Palmer? Some seeds come up because they, they and have a longer life, but Palmer's got a shorter shelf life, right? If you can bury it for a couple of years, it goes away. Or the weeds aren't viable. If you, can, if you can bury it just a couple of inches, uh, that's why it hates conservation tillage. I'm conservation of cover crops so much, but uh, it needs sunlight more than most weeds to get germinated. But if it gets under there, and a lot of people know this, but if it gets, it gets deep turned, it pretty much does not become a problem for you. Hmm. Interesting. That seed, that seed does not become a problem for you anyway. <laughs> the only problem is it's going to mess up my carbon program. Just, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, there. It, it, this gets back to the, all the trade-offs, right? Time. Right yield availability of herbicides time let's go back to that um, i mean there's a lot of games here you know we joked a little bit before we started talking on this for the recording that there are parts of the world that consume amaranth as a food source i mean you've seen it right. i've seen it but we were joking you know ladies and gentlemen if we decided to consume palmer amaranth as a food source that'd be all you'd be eating <laughs> it just takes over everything it was so. yes exactly right and, and as we know down here with kudzu we know once once some something gets going it's hard to stop and i don't know if you're, some of your viewers might not know but go google kudzu and you'll see what a lot of georgia looks like georgia and parts of north carolina as someone who found out what the real reason why kudzu was brought to this country that's right yeah, that's a that's also our own self-inflicted wound luckily we can keep that at bay at yeah. least in our fields but yeah we don't want that and we don't need that well uh brad i appreciate your insight on this uh, thanks for the early warning because those of us in soybean country have palmer problems hearing that you've got a ppo uh, pre-emerge PPO issue in the South, it means that you need, everybody up here needs to start paying attention too, because it's going to come this way. And I tell you, like, like being the sentinel plot, so to speak, it yeah. just comes down. It's not really anybody doing anything sloppy. It's just the environment, how things happen. It's just, you know, we just got to try to outflank nature sometimes. We just do our best. 
Well, and in fact, a, a person using PPO as a pre-merge was probably doing their side of action work anyway. Absolutely. And so <laughs> that's the challenge. It's like it kind of turned around and bit us again. Well, good to talk to you, Brad. Uh, stay care. Uh, stay careful. I mean, you're in the middle, middle of almost finishing planting season, and you're getting hotter weather all the time. So uh, keep in touch, and we'll be talking to you again in the future. Thank you, Willie. We always enjoy talking to Brad Hare and appreciate his reporting on this resistance issue. We know farmers are working hard to combat resistance, but as you heard, it's a race that's just sometimes impossible to stay ahead of. With news that surface supply PPOs may be less effective, it may be time to talk to your agronomist about options in 2022 and beyond. Thanks for listening today, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more, to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you have a smart speaker, all you have to do is tell it to listen to Around Farm Progress, and you'll hear this latest episode. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source, with 17 state and regional brands, as well as farm futures, beef, national hog farmer, and feedstuffs and our events, including the Farm Progress Show, Husker Harvest Days, and the New York Farm Show. And there's another opportunity for staying connected to Farm Progress using your smartphone. If you text FARM to 20505, you can sign up for the Farm Progress mobile text service. When you send that first message, you'll get a confirmation, so be sure to respond to that too to make sure you get on the list. Once subscribed, you'll get a daily alert containing a top-level news item from our editorial team. And you can even eventually join the Farm Progress panel to share your thoughts on our regular polls. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.